It has been said that fire reveals the truth of whatever it touches. The crucible, the inferno. Combustion creates an environment so extreme that even with all our technology, we still can't control the outcome of every conflagration. Throughout human history, fires have been supporting actors in the ongoing construction of our collective identity. Speaking of identity, I'm Jess Phoenix, and I'm the incoming host of the podcast by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Until the next iteration of the podcast is ready, I'm curating previous episodes of Got Science for you. I hope these episodes get you excited for where we go from here. Now, in this era of a rapidly changing climate where human civilization encroaches ever further into wildlands, it can be easy to demonize fire. For decades, forest management aimed to prevent all fires. The catalytic property of flame was almost relegated to the dustbin of forgotten and often intentionally overlooked knowledge held by indigenous peoples. Some Native American tribes held annual controlled burns to help encourage new plant growth, and numerous native plant and tree species are pyrophytes. That means they're either adapted to tolerate fire, their unique biological makeup encourages fires, or they actually need fire to complete the process of reproduction. Just as our understanding of fire's role in nature is shifting, so is our knowledge of the part apex predators play in their ecosystems. Around the globe, species like the Mexican grizzly bear, Barbary lion, and thylacine, aka Tasmanian tiger, have gone extinct. This leaves a hole not just in the natural environment, but in our understanding of the delicate interplay between biology, hydrology, geology, and the atmosphere. The Mexican gray wolf is both a conservation success story and another example of the ongoing challenges facing humans and animals existing in the same physical environment. Ranchers want their livestock to be safe from predation, and the environmental necessity of protecting the wolf population is very real. Just like with fire management, species conservation is a carefully choreographed balancing act of meeting human needs while protecting an increasingly fragile natural world. The Got Science episode I've chosen to re-air for you today blends wolves and wildfires in a conversation previous host Colleen McDonald had with John Trapp, who is both a wildland fire behavior analyst and wildlife biologist. Just as solutions to big environmental problems like climate change need to be multifaceted, so do the people who are working to meet these challenges. John's work is a testament to the flexibility and adaptability of science to meet the needs of our changing world. John, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. You're the first firefighter we've had on the podcast, but you've had an interesting career path from a stint in the Air Force to studying conservation biology and endangered wolves to fighting wildfires. Is there a common thread to your career path? Well, I'd like to think so. As we unravel our, our past, uh, looking at it from when I was in the Air Force, I was a intelligence analyst. And part of that job involves taking a lot of different information and putting it together and trying to predict outcomes. 
So I think that analytical mind was started started to be built uh, during that time frame. I was also I flew in F-15s and F-16s, and that was a, a lot of fun. But I found myself uh, looking at the ground and the landscapes below me a lot. I had been interested in wolves for a long time. And when I was stationed in Germany, I had heard that wolves were recolonizing the eastern part of Germany. And I wanted to go see that. So on my days off, I would travel out to eastern Germany and go tracking and set up a tent and uh, look for wolves. Didn't ever see any while I was there, but it, it kind of definitely started that, that hunt. From there, I, I, when I got out of the uh, Air Force, I was able to use the GI Bill, go back to school, and get a master's degree in conservation biology and study wolves more specifically. Then I worked across the West, started in Arizona and New Mexico with the Mexican gray wolf. So yeah. what, I mean, what kind of work were you doing? Were you up close and personal? Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the wolf job had three main parts to it. So the first part was that we were tracking and monitoring the wolf population in conjunction with the Endangered Species Act. And that involved primarily trapping and radio collaring. And then once again, flying, which put me in the air again, looking down onto the ground. But now uh, I was looking for wolves. So we would track that and keep so we knew what the status of the population was and how they were how they were doing towards meeting the objectives of you know, being a recovered species. And the next part of that job would be conflict resolution between as I mentioned, Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, there was a fair amount of conflict <laughs> with wolves. Um, and by conflict, do you mean with uh, like ranchers? Yes. Um, most of the conflict involved with, you know, livestock depredations or losses of livestock or a perceived loss or a worry of loss. And so wolves definitely elicited a lot of passion, anger, sometimes they were able to focus anger towards rural ranching communities, sometimes have an anger towards the government. And they were able to focus that anger at the wolves and the people that were there with the wolves. So, but I also worked with a lot of ranchers that, you know, they're, they're really good people. They were just trying to do their their business on the landscape. And so we were trying to figure out how to minimize livestock losses, also keep the wolves alive. So but, one thing that I found interesting early on was that as I was out there working with wolves and meeting these ranchers is they, uh, you know, I had one rancher right away say, you brought those wolves here. And uh, I was able to say, actually, I was serving overseas in the military when the wolves were reintroduced. And that that brought with it, especially in that community, a lot of respect. So they were able to, they would actually step back and go, oh, well, thank you for your service. And that opened a door to a lot of the people and the ranchers I was dealing with. So I found that as quite the benefit. They uh, were able to respect that and, and realize that I had done other things besides just working with the wolves. And then the last part was the education and the outreach part of it, which was constant because there's so much misinformation about wolves. And there's a lot of misinformation about wildfire as well. Give me an example of some of the misinformation about wolves that you encountered. 
Sure, there was a lot of irrational fear of wolves being dangerous to humans. In New Mexico, they were building these shelters so that the children, while waiting for the school bus, could be protected from the wolves. Or thoughts that wolves would you know, reproduce endlessly and multiple times a year, which is not the fact. They only go into heat once a year in the April time frame, February. And also the thought that if wolves weren't kept in check, that they would overrun all the native game and kill everything on the landscape, which I'd follow up with explaining that wolves and, and ungulates or, or native game had been on the landscape for tens of thousands of years, and that didn't happen then, so I'm not sure why they thought it was going to happen now. Tell me about an encounter you've had with a wolf. Yeah, I've, I, the, you know, wolves are amazing creatures, and I remember one time I had to hike into an area. This was in Arizona with the Mexican gray wolf to, to figure out if this, this wolf pack had had pups. With radio collars, we can tell when they they have pups because they kind of localize in a region during the denning season. And uh, we, uh, but we had no idea. And so I had to go hike into this area and uh, I had a radio telemetry receiver and I was hiking up this ridge and I was, I knew I was getting close because the beeps were getting louder and louder. And I turned down the gain on my, my, my receiver and Finally, I got to the point where I actually disconnected the antenna because I was so close to the wolves that I didn't even need the antenna on the receiver. So I had my head up. I'm looking for them. Look down, and there's a fresh wolf scat right under my under my feet. And I looked a little bit further, and uh, a head of a wolf just kind of raised up from a ridge and looked at me. And it was about maybe 20 yards away from me. And then right next to it, another wolf head. And on the other side, another wolf head. And I had three wolves staring at me. I was by myself. And uh, so I was kind of looking at them and they were looking at me. And then suddenly the alpha uh, male started running towards me. And then the other two joined. And that's very uncharacteristic uh, of the wolves, even if you're in their in their denning area. And they ran till they got about 10 yards away from me and then circled me. And there, the three of three wolves were circling. And the last wolf I could tell was a yearling or a from last year's litter because it was hopping, trying to look at me. They just weren't used to having humans right there, and so they were just trying to get a good view of me. And they circled me several times, and then they went back to the ridge where I first saw them. And then all three of them started howling. It was the alpha male, alpha female, and a yearling. And I was like, oh wow, this is really cool. But I don't know if they've had pups yet. <laughs> and just then, in this little drainage next to me, I heard all the wolf pups start howling back. So I knew that they had had pups and produced successfully. And, and so I was able to kind of turn around and walk out from that, er- that area. And it was a fun. Wow. The That's alpha amazing. male escorted me out of there as I walked out. So he kind of followed me and flanked me and just made sure I was leaving. And then he left me alone. So you you then moved from working with wolves to firefighting. Tell me about that transition. Well, it seemed just about every summer that I was out trapping and radio collaring wolves that at one point or another, I would have to leave an area or pull traps because a wildfire was burning. (laughs) So one of the largest fires that burned in this area where I live in Montana, I 
actually flew over the origin of that fire um, earlier in the day, tracking wolves, and then later a lightning strike uh, hit that same location and started a fire, which is where most of the wildfires in the West in Northern Rockies, they come from, you know, lightning strikes. So it was interesting to see when I, that fire burned for several weeks. And when I returned in uh, above the fire area and in the airplane tracking wolves, there was this one drainage where the wolves, they were in this drainage every time I flew day after day. And that's a bit unusual for the wolves because they, they cover several hundred square miles for a home range up to 500. And up in Alaska, you're looking at a thousand square miles. So they move a lot. They cover a lot of ground and to keep finding them in the same spot was strange. So after a few weeks of this, I decided I needed to hike into the area and see what was going on. And in the process, I had found that the fire had burned up this one particular canyon and there was a lot of smoke coming up the canyon that ended up asphyxiating a small herd of elk. And they were all dead there in that canyon. And the wolves were just staying there and eating these dead elk. So I guess this relationship of of fire and wolves, it was around me. And so I was also volunteering at the local fire department search and rescue organization. And as an EMT, a job opportunity opened up, which would allow me to be with my family more than I would would be potentially on the wolf side of things. So I made a decision to switch careers to fire and paramedicine. And in the process, trained as a wildland firefighter and found very quickly that that was my, my passion. It was very interesting and it got me out on the landscape to continue to to be with my feet on the ground and dealing with you know wild forces of nature so let let's talk wildfires for a bit so when when i think about firefighting from where i sit which is on the east coast in a well in a small town but in a city setting i see a fire on television it might be three or four alarm fire sometimes a five alarm fire, it's a house or a building and uh, surrounding towns will come and they fight this fire. And the ratio of firefighters and equipment to fire is pretty high. And I think about what you're doing fighting a wildfire where it's just immense amount of land that's burning. I mean, what, what is the strategy for fighting something that huge? Well, you know, all all fires start small, and and most firefighters in the United States are volunteers. So there's over a million firefighters, and only a third of those are are full time paid firefighters. So it is common, like you described, that a a fire starts, and then you have several local fire departments respond with their engines. So from a wild from a structure side, it's a little bit different approach to a wildland fire side. So you you are currently your position is fire behavior analyst, which I'm thinking back to your your work in the Air Force being an analyst. I'm thinking you're kind of a data geek at heart. What what is the role of a fire behavior analyst? Uh, you're right. It is a little bit uh, geeky. And I do like 
that uh, I like the idea of trying to predict what's going to happen. And so when the fire first starts, we're just kind of, all right, we just got to get there and get on it and try to knock it down. But as a fire continues to grow or, or exceeds our ability to suppress it, then it starts to span multiple days and multiple operational periods. And that means that we're going to fight fire all day and possibly some in the night. And then the next morning we're going to get up and we're going to attack and hopefully have a plan and almost always have a plan. (laughs) But that plan is really contingent on what we're expecting the fire to do. And that's contingent on three main factors. We have the fuels, the, the, the materials that are burning, mostly natural, but fuels also include structures. We have the weather. What's it going to do? What's the temperatures, the relative humidity, the winds? And then we have the topography, where you have things like canyons or upslope. Fire likes to go upslope, and, and you have really explosive fire growth when you have an upslope canyon and a, and a wind that aligns with it. So the fire behavior analyst is using uh, science to put all these things together. We plug all these variables into models that can give us important information like rate of spread, like how, how fast is this fire going to move? Flame lengths, how, how tall is this fire going to be coming up? Because if it's four feet or less, which you might get off of grass, we could go direct. We could go right at the head of the fire and we could knock it down. But when it starts to exceed four feet, getting up into four to eight feet flame lengths, and we need then we need engines, and we start needing dozers, and then we're needing aircraft and retardant and helicopters with bucket drops, and and it completely starts to change our overall approach from direct fire attack to an indirect method, and so the fire behavior analyst is critical in figuring out what we're dealing with, but. Fire behavior analysts don't usually get mobilized until it's a large fire. So a, a large incident like what we've seen in well in Colorado and in Alaska and California. We've seen them in Texas and New Mexico. So it's a big team at that point. You're talking hundreds of firefighters, maybe thousands, before you start to have a dedicated fire behavior analyst. To get a sense of the size of these fires, I looked up the size of the state of Rhode Island, which is just under 800,000 square feet. So how large are the fires that you're dealing with? We have huge portions of of America that are burning um, every year. And that 8.6 million is is more than the 10-year average. But if you start to look at the averages over even the last five years, we are rapidly growing in the number of fires, the length of the fire season, and the total acres that are burned. So it's definitely, even in the 14 years that I've been firefighting, which is really a blip, and obviously fire ecology and fire landscape studies, is it's changing dramatically and we're seeing things burn. I was on a fire uh, at Point Reyes um, outside of San Francisco 
that the portion of the of the of the park that we were in had no human record of ever burning and we were watching green ferns burn up a slope with all of the firefighters standing there with their jaws dropped it's not it's not normal you don't see green vegetation burn like that and especially in an area that had never burned so things are definitely changing why would that be so with with climate change we see changes in large scale weather patterns and changes we we all know about rising temperatures but in addition to rising temperatures we have changes in in the climate and the patterns above us which change where moisture where where we have more precipitation where we used to have some that we don't anymore areas that used to have you know more rain are seeing less and we're seeing areas that have you know lightning that we didn't really have lightning before areas in Alaska and of course in California we had a huge lightning bust in August that there was just lightning hitting everywhere these are large scale pattern changes you know in in our climate that are a little bit hard for people to see unless they're in the middle of it watching it and they're and the people that I run into that live in these areas are they're just saying we've never seen this before do you see any parallels between endangered species management and and fire management yes i i do i, I fairly quickly when i started working with a wildfire i was still involved with wolf education and and outreach and continued that on the side but something that stood out pretty quickly and i came across a poster that kind of cemented it it was from the 50s it was a poster of a us forest service poster it had a wolf on it the wolf was made out of flames and it said don't unleash the beast on the forest and they were using both of these symbol both of these things that were at the time both considered bad at the, at the time all fire needed to be suppressed because it burned forest it it took away habitat for for wildlife and of course logging it impacted logging and we had strong messages from smoky the bear and and bambi about how wildfire was bad and and in around the early 1900s we had the same transition with wolves um that all wolves were were bad and the only good wolf was a dead wolf and and so both of the management um approaches were to remove and stop all wildfire and all um and all wolves just to remove it from the landscape as much as possible without really understanding the ecological consequence of doing both those things so the management approach was very similar um and i found that very uh interesting and then you know but there was a point where we started to recognize that we uh-oh you know <laughs> maybe we have done something we shouldn't have which um humans occasionally do right as we figure out <laughs> what what we're doing so then we started the process of trying to bring some fire back to the landscape and bringing wolves back to the landscape 
So what if I put you in charge of doing an all new Smokey Bear campaign today? What would you have him advocate for? Well, I still I do believe that Smokey's message of, you know, don't be the one who starts the fire is a good message, right? We you don't have to be the one that forgets to put the your campfire out. Um, but the rest of the message and then maybe this the side of, that involves the Bambi and is that fire is a necessary part of the landscape that our forests have evolved with fire and many of the species in our forest are fire dependent which means that's how they you know regenerate in our forest so so i think the message is that yeah fire um, is okay um, under certain circumstances and helping people understand what those circumstances are but helping to prepare the landscape for the inevitable fire that will come so after a hundred years of fairly aggressive fire suppression, um, we have unhealthy forests because just like the wolves that cleanse the herd of elk to improve the elk um, health, frequent low and moderate intensity fires cleanse the grounds of the forest and do nutrient releases back and, and help also remove the the sick the the dying and the dead from the forest so so i think the message is we we have to find a place for for fire on the landscape but we need to we need to do some prep work ahead of time so what are some of the options for people who are living in these fire prone areas or are there any options for them to continue to live in these areas I think there are options, but we have to understand that we are not going to be living without fire. Um, if you're living in a forest, there will be fire. It's coming. So how to how do we prepare for that? And I think a lot of people want to live in the forest. You know, approximately 60% of the homes that were built since 1990 have been built in what the wildland urban interface which is defined as where you know native or natural forest materials intermix with structures that's the wildland urban interface so um so if we're going to do that we have to think about planning at the subdivision level and we have to also understand what we're doing to habitat so we are, anytime you put a subdivision in, right, you are destroying some sort of habitat. And so that always should be into take, taken into account. You're doing amazing work protecting wolves and fighting wildfires and connecting the dots to climate change. Um, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. It was, it was a pleasure to be here with you. What a great conversation with Colleen and John. John sounds like no matter what danger is staring him in the face, whether it's got teeth or intense flames, he's got ice water running through his veins. And on a more serious note, I really want to use the new version of our podcast to explore the interactions between humans and the natural world. 
because we can conserve, but we can also destroy. So as our societies grow bigger and bigger, we have to be ever more mindful of the impacts we're having. This episode was a great way to sort of set the tone for where we'll be going in weeks and months ahead. Tune in next time. I'm Jess Phoenix, and this has been the best of God Science.